0: But if we listen to the planet, what she tells us, it tells us to stop tearing down these amazing solutions that has been working for hundreds of thousands of years to make sure we manage this this Earth that we have. And so the science are in our favor. The data is in our favor. And now we just need to go to work at scale to get this done.
1: Welcome to Impact Adventures, stories from the front lines of change-making. Today, we have a great story of impact investing successes and opportunities. Just in case you are new to the podcast, we're all about sustainable investing here, using the mighty power of the capital markets to make the world a better and more profitable place for all. Our core belief is that with education and intentionality, we can shift the way business is conducted so that it serves all stakeholders and not just shareholders.
2: This season, we're doing a deep dive into the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Each episode focuses on one UN SDG, and you can follow along as we release them or come and go as you prefer, listening to episodes that focus on goals that you align with or your clients. Profit? Yes.
1: How about purpose? You bet. All right, let's go. Today, we're talking SDG number 14, which seeks to conserve and sustainably use the ocean, seas, and marine resources.
2: The targets of the goal aim to reduce marine pollution, protect marine and coastal ecosystems, including supporting small-scale fisheries, and minimizing the impacts of ocean acidification which is the ongoing decrease in the pH value of our oceans due to climate change. What's so great about the oceans and marine life, you ask? Well, even if the award-winning documentary Octopus Teacher didn't convince you that the sea and its creatures are worth protecting, here's an economic argument. More than 3 billion people rely on the oceans for their livelihoods.
1: As mentioned, Part of the trouble for oceans goes back to what we discussed with Dr. Chris Gregg from Princeton, global warming. Most worrisome is that the number of dead zones, which are areas of the ocean that cannot support marine life because they lack enough oxygen, rose from 400 dead zones in 2008 to 700 in 2019. For more on this and why oceans are so key to the planet's health, we talked with Johan Berganos, World Wildlife Fund's Senior Vice President for Oceans.
2: Hi, Johan. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you are and how you came to be an Oceans expert.
0: Sure. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, my name is Johan Berganos, and I'm the Senior Vice President for Oceans at WWF. Uh, But I'm currently up in Vermont, um, as we all are taking refuge from the ongoing uh, pandemic. But my headquarters is in Washington, D.C., and that's where I spend my professional life.
2: Well, great. Let's get started and talk kind of on the basic level about why ocean health is so important to the entire planet. I think it's
0: rather simple. Oceans holds these amazing solutions to people and the planet's most pressing problems. It really is fundamental, not only the oceans, but to all of these other sustainable development goals that deals with hunger, for example, because the oceans provide food through seafood and other means to billions of people around the world. It's also an economic engine. The seafood industry, for example, is a hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of billion dollar industry. And something uh, that we have talked a lot about uh, over the last decades, but really we've turned a corner here is climate change. And oceans is also a solution to climate change because it stores uh, billions and billions of tons of carbon matters, which is incredibly important. And if we manage coastal region well, such things as mangroves can protect uh, against storm surges and sea level rise and whatnot. So it is an amazing solutions driver, but it's also an amazing threat to societies and people. One of my favorite or my least favorite examples, depending how you see it, is that we are seeing this increasing competition around seafood and fish around the world. Armed conflict in all corners of the world that can result in, if we don't sustainably manage fish, in the next world war potentially. So it's really important that we treat the oceans as a solutions engine so that we can help with these other problems we're facing and and avoid issues over war and peace.
1: So, Johan, this episode is is kind of all about, uh, you know, the Sustainable Development Goal number 14, life in the water. Having kind of laid out the case for why oceans are so important, are you optimistic that SDG number 14 will be met? I'm very optimistic, but let me start with some
0: uh, doom and gloom first. SDG 14 currently is the least measurable goal out of the 17 SDGs. And this is in large part due to an enormous amount of lack of information about the oceans from the seabed to the surface. And it's very, very hard, having spent some time in the private sector and the not-for-profit sector, to measure and manage things if you don't have good data. So it's a huge opportunity here uh, to improve that issue. So that's number one. Number two, which is also on the doom and gloom pathway here, is that SDG 14 is the least funded and among the least prioritized SDGs. But the thing here with oceans is that I think it represents this decade's comeback story. For the reason that I mentioned before, it is an amazing solutions driver. And I think politicians and people generally are starting to understand the value that oceans can bring to people and society by bringing food and energy, medicine, amazing other discoveries that can help uh, both um, society and the planet writ large. So it's a ton of work ahead of us, uh, but it is one of these great comeback stories. And uh, I, I hope that this is the age of oceans that we have just around the corner.
2: Johan, you mentioned that Oceans are a solution for climate change, which was actually the uh, episode we did last week. But climate change is actually harming the oceans, no?
0: Oh, it's it's completely and utterly detrimental to the health of the oceans. Uh, carbon dioxide uh, into the oceans uh, cause all sorts of heating, acidification, coral bleaching, Uh, movement of fish that otherwise wouldn't take place, which disturbs, obviously, resiliency for for communities and societies. It it is very, very dangerous what we are seeing here. And again, we don't know and we don't have the data that tells us if a collapse of ocean's ecosystem is imminent or if we have another decade or two to reverse these negative trends. You're 100% right that it has this uh, negative impact. But again, ocean is this amazing carbon sink, uh, nature-based solutions like mangroves and other other uh, specifics can absorb carbon, can serve as, as, as uh, opportunities to prevent or mitigate storm surges and sea level rise and whatnot. So
1: it's both a threat and a solution. Johan, I'm curious, you mentioned there as part of the solution for climate change, Mangroves. Can you maybe just go into a little more detail there? How are mangroves a solution? Is that something that as humanity, we should be trying to create more of them or sustain the ones we have? What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Uh, On my team here, I got a fantastic team working on mangroves initiatives in a number of countries around the world. and We are working on protecting them to begin with, uh, restoring them when necessary, and regrowing them uh, when that is appropriate, talking about policy initiatives to to make sure that they can be the type of buffer that we need between, um, as I said, when you see sea level rise, when you see storm surges, when you see natural disaster, they absorb a lot of that pressures. And that's important because about 40% of humans today live around coastal areas, which means that billions and billions of people are a threat from oceans and so this is a really important nature-based solution for us that is cost effective and that really can provide multiple uh, areas of support for us it's also a great breeding ground for fish and for other biodiversity so it has a natural ecological value it has a people's value and it has a societal value we in the united states have seen the negative consequences of weak coastal regions around the Gulf Coast. We're seeing it down in Florida and even in California. If we have strong nature-based solutions, including mangroves in our coastal areas, we can really protect our people, protect biodiversity, combat climate. This is a win, 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 win that, that we really should be investing in more.
2: Are there limitations on where you can put and support mangroves?
0: Yeah, there there are tropical reasons to why uh, you know mangroves can't grow everywhere. Uh, there are obviously uh, reasons where they are not particularly conducive because of the climate. Uh, and then, of course, we have done terrible things to coastal regions, so there might not be an opportunity to regrow, or it might take a long time. So it's not uh, a silver bullet by any stretch of the imagination. But if we listen to the planet, what she tells us, it tells us to stop tearing down these amazing solutions that has been working for hundreds of thousands of years to make sure we manage this this earth that we have. And so the science are in our favor, the data is in our favor, and now we just need to go to work at scale to get this done. And and my colleagues uh, at WWF are working really hard in countries like Fiji and Madagascar uh, Mexico and Colombia to really prove these uh, viability of this program and ultimately scale our work uh, around the world.
1: That's excellent. And I love the phrase you use there about nature-based solutions. It's it's so much more appealing than, uh, you know, you just build a higher concrete wall along the coastline, for example. That that doesn't seem very tenable. And much it's much prettier too. Absolutely. What about plastic in the oceans? We hear a lot about that why is it so critical um, to remove plastic from the oceans and keep plastic out of the oceans? And what are some ways that businesses can help? So let me first give
0: yourself and your listener a little bit of an idea about the scale we're talking about. So every minute of every day, about a dump truck's worth of plastic flows into our oceans. So it's a huge dumping site that we are currently experiencing. On the fishery side, we are seeing these abandoned gears being left in the oceans, creating that plastic waste, hurting hundreds and hundreds of species that is part of this ecosystem that impacts all uh, issues that we deal with on land and in the oceans. Especially endangered mammals, we see a lot of destruction of of that species. But there are also economic and public health issues here uh, that we are starting to see Uh, As we study this more, and we need to study this issue much more than we have done so far. But um, in many of the popular tourist destinations, uh, we are seeing coastal pollution on the beaches that could become a public health issues that attracts um, uh, all sorts of negative things for people and species in these areas. And we are beginning to learn more about how microplastics are entering both wildlife and humans and the negative consequences that that may have on on public health issues. So, you know, we are we are dealing right now with an issue at scale. We are trying to identify opportunities to manage it and one of the things that WWF does really well is to engage the private sector. And we do engage them in a couple of different ways here. we we listen to what uh, opportunities and solutions that they uh, believe can result in solution to plastic issues. and then we turn those uh, listening tours into policy campaigns uh, that put responsibility on producers for proper disposal, for new business model to recycle better, uh, to eliminate plastic from their, Supply chains. So by creating coalitions of sustainable, uh, responsible private sector partners, we can really define uh, new market trajectories. We can get policymakers to to regulate and uh, and have better policies for plastics. This is not just an issue for the planet. This impacts the economy, things like the private sector, public health, tourism. Oceans issues are planetary and people issues.
2: It sounded like one of the plastics issues actually has to do with the fishing process. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about the need to make fishing more sustainable and, and even how the plastics issue plays into that.
0: So there's, there's a wide variety of gears that is being used to fish all around the world And many times they get left behind, they get dropped, and it ends up polluting large and very sensitive marine areas around the world. And so one of the things that we are doing at WWF is that we work in uh, Latin America and in other places on education and training on how to dispose of gear responsible, what gears to use and making sure that this is a commodity that does not get left behind in the oceans uh, so that it, it hurts the very life that we depend on and that the fishery community is actually in their self-interest to manage well. It, it, As you say, it's not only the average person drinking a soda and, and throwing it away in an unsustainable way and it ending up in the ocean. It is industry uh, that we work with To make sure that they have good practices and good uh, opportunities to learn how to use their gear and dispose of them and recycle them in appropriate ways.
1: Johan, what do you think the general public can do to support our oceans? What steps can we all take on kind of a day-to-day basis to try and take care of them?
0: The The first thing I would challenge everyone to start thinking about the oceans as a people, planet and societal issue. Think about what you need every day to be safe, to be secure, to have food, to have a job, to operate uh, your life, to raise a family, and then try to understand how oceans impact your life. And I can guarantee you, if a person thinks about that long enough, consults resources that we at WWF have, they will see a very direct line to their lives and how ocean health can positively or the lack thereof, negatively can impact their lives the second thing is along those lines and i'll get to some specific here in a second uh, Stephen, is that we have to stop treating oceans as an ocean's issue and think about it as a geopolitical issue unhealthy oceans is an issue of war and peace armed conflict and war between great powers and not so great powers impact all of our safety and security. So that's the second piece of this. And the U.S. government is actually taking a step in that direction now, which is exciting and interesting. At a very personal level, it might be boring to hear this, but it's not rocket science. Like all things that are worthy of doing, it's both simple and a little bit hard to do. And it has to do with lifestyle changes. Reduce your plastic use. Uh, bring reusable bags to your grocery store. Uh, Use energy-efficient electronics. Um, Understand what it means to have seafood being on the trajectory to to sustainability. Take political action. Uh, Talk to your local representative or write to your uh, state and, and federal representatives why ocean matters to you. Use the power of your purse to invest in organizations that does darn good oceans work. I happen to be working for one uh, but if you contribute with your voice and your resources to make oceans healthy, uh, that will
1: go a long way. That's excellent. Johan, you have a lot of passion for the oceans. We can just hear that as you speak. Where did that come from? Was there a moment in your life where something happened or something clicked and, and you just said, you know, the, the ocean is calling and I must go?
0: I love, I love that question. M- my background is very unconventional. I am not a ocean scientist or an oceanographer. I, I don't have a scuba diving certificate yet, so I don't you know, get that deep into the oceans. And uh, uh, I haven't committed my entire career to oceans issues, but early in my career and, and something that I still associate with, I was working on very serious defense and national security issues. Uh, counterterrorism, nuclear non-proliferation, transnational organized crime, conflict, war and peace. And I was trying to understand what triggers insecurity, which has this tremendous suffering for people and societies. And then I had this opportunity to begin working on environmental issues. And then colleagues and friends asked me to come join them in this mission of protecting oceans, making sure that we sustainably use them. And I didn't know much about it. And when I learned that 3 billion people depend on seafood as their primary source of protein it just it was mind-blowing to me that we weren't making more investment in these oceans because when people are hungry when people don't have a place to live when people don't have work they kill each other literally they go to war with each other they treat each other badly and so for me this was such an obvious issue of of, of security and defense that we weren't thinking about and as populations were growing as our responses to ocean health issues weren't adequately being managed, I just thought that this would be a great opportunity for me to bring my geopolitical and other perspective to this issue. And the the final thing I'll say is, I started to think as I learned from people who know more about oceans than myself, I learned about these great opportunities, about the next generation of energy and food and medicine. And God knows what's down there. That we must either protect, or that we can use to make the world a better place. I just saw this as an amazing opportunity to commit my professional career to doing some good in the world together with others. And so it was all—it's always been too good to be true for me to have a chance to to be at the cutting edge at, with WWF to do this work. So. So that's a little bit my origin story about uh, why I love to work on the ocean so much.
1: That's excellent, Johan. And I think it's really interesting, the point you raise about the link between oceans and ocean health and security and and war. It's it's a concept that, frankly, I haven't thought of before. And um, so thank you for raising that both to myself and to our audience.
0: Well, thank you so much. And, And maybe I can put it a little bit more into context here that will make it Another aha moment for for you and Liz and your listeners. Yeah, please. The the best example that, that I have is we have fought war over oil and gas, over sugar, over spices, over critical commodity trading routes. And so fish is just another incredible, invaluable commodity that people all around the world are literally dying to have access to. And in a world where populations are increasing and fish stocks are decreasing, unfortunately, there's only one path. And that's why I think that this sustainability around fish stocks, who gets to use it, when we get to use it, and how we get to use it, is so critical so that we don't fall into another natural resource war, which there have been plenty of throughout history. And let me give you a crazy statistic that that I uh, love to hate. And that is that in between the Second World War II and the end of the Cold War, about one quarter of all armed conflicts between democracies were over fish. Now imagine in the current context what will happen if we don't take bold action over the next 10 years when it comes to war and peace. That's what's at stake here. And the time is now to to start working hard at fixing this problem.
2: Johan thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much it was my pleasure.
2: Sustainable aquaculture is seen as both an environmental and financial opportunity. It's estimated that producers will need 150 billion to 300 billion in capital spending over the next decade to build out the infrastructure that will be needed to meet consumer demand for seafood as the population grows. Investors therefore can influence the drive towards sustainable aquaculture and push the use of low impact production methods towards commercial scale.
1: We invited George Bonat, one of the founders of Hatch, to explain what sustainable aquaculture needs to move into big time production. Hatch is an aquaculture technology investment firm that only invests in companies that have a declared mission to create a more sustainable aquaculture industry. Hatch has invested in more than 30 companies and raised $8 million for a high-impact fund.
2: Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, George.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Could you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and how Hatch was born?
3: So I'm George Baunach, managing partner and co-founder of Hatch. Hatch is an aquaculture investment firm. We also do invest in alternative seafood and Hatch was born four years ago when my other co-founder, Carsten Chrome, and I met online or we connected on LinkedIn um, because we both uh, thought that there's a need for more support for early stage innovation in the aquaculture industry. And with that, we, we started. We, we initially ran accelerator programs, um, the very first location we did that was in in norway in in uh which which is pretty much the yeah the global headquarter for for salmon production and from there we spread out, we opened an office in Singapore and later also in the u s
2: And where are you located?
3: yeah most of the time in europe i've spent some time in singapore as well so in europe i'm i'm really travelling between continental europe and going up to to norway where we have an office
1: great and george what is sustainable aquaculture what makes it different from a typical fish farm yeah great question
3: so some of the traditional aquaculture has a problem with with the with the pollutants with the runoffs and also with, for example, mangrove deforestation. And there are better ways to do that that have a lower impact on the surrounding environment, but also potentially lower impact on the on the upstream, um, on the inputs that go into the farm, mostly through the feed. And so in our definition, sustainable aquaculture includes a wide variety of production methods, um, for example, producing fish on land, in in recirculating or flow through systems, or taking the fish further offshore and producing them in what we call offshore systems. But in what's also very important to us is are the the inputs, the ingredients that go into the farm, and there's a huge need to to also make them more sustainable.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. And what types of fish are farmed? I imagine there are some that that might work better in an aquaculture environment, and some that maybe you just can't do that, and they have to be caught in the wild.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so from a, from an American plate perspective, the most of the shrimp that that you would eat would probably come from farms. There's some some fishing also in in the Gulf of Mexico, but most of the shrimp globally is produced in farms. Most of these farms are, are located in Southeast Asia or in Ecuador. Then salmon apart from some wild fisheries is, is also farmed on a on a large scale. That's mostly done in Norway but also in Chile and Scotland and Ireland. And then there are species like tilapia that are yeah whitefish species that compete also quite closely with other wild caught uh, whitefish that are farmed mostly in Asia. Mm, And then aquaculture, and that's the difference to other animal farming sector includes a large variety of other species. So it's really diverse and many of them can be farmed. There are only really a few where it's technically not possible or or economically not not viable.
2: And how does Hatch get its funds in order to make investments in companies that support sustainable aquaculture?
3: Right now, we are also in the process of setting up our second fund, so that's it's a very classic venture capital model. In the second fund, we we are um, labeling this also as an as an impact investing. Um, fund we can we can dive more into that but where our capital is coming from is family offices high net worth individuals institutional investors but also for for us the mm, strategic piece in industrial player um, play an important role because we are purely b2b we don't necessarily involved in the companies that then put the seafood in front of the consumer. So we, for us, having the connections with the industry is hugely important. And therefore, we also have industrial players in our fund.
1: And you mentioned that this second fund will be considered an impact fund. Um, can you talk a little bit about the first fund? Was it an impact fund um, compared to the second one?
3: Yeah, for the first fund, we went and the first fund was much smaller. We start, that was 8.4 million US dollars. We were then asked why we were fundraising by some investors to actually put our impact narrative, I would call it at this stage, down on paper. So I did that. I wrote about a 20 page document. But that was more just explaining why sustainable aquaculture and how it works rough outline of the theory of change but it was not baked into the fund structure into the incentive structures so we changed that for the second fund we partnered up with the nature conservancy on um, to To be the conservation manager of the fund that's in our space a fairly unique setup because they're going to take care of the environmental and social due diligence of the monitoring of the reporting and that's not sitting anymore with us as a fund manager but we also we also changed the incentive structure so we have our carry as a fund manager connected to the achievement of the impact targets. We set quantifiable impact targets for, for the on the portfolio level. So I guess that's then altogether qualifying as an impact investing fund.
2: If you could give us a couple of examples of some of the firms that Hatch has invested in.
3: For example, one company that had a process to up concentrate barley protein they're actually called montana microbial products out of montana <laughs> uh, they their process allows to take barley, which has a s- roughly 16 protein con- uh, protein content and increase the protein content in the final product to something that's then compatible with what's currently the industry standard which is soy protein concentrate mm, the reason <laughs> you might ask why is that within our aquaculture or sustainable aquaculture mandate is that feed is a hugely important component in in farming it on average is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of the operational cost of an of a typical farm and the the there's a strong connection between the environmental sustainability of the farm and yeah the scope 3 emissions of the of the feed so that is an example of a company that we invested in we then helped them with further verifying their market uh, value proposition we helped them to connect internationally with the large feed players and then also with one of our LPs in the first fund, and they are building now a large factory to to produce forty thousand tons of that product. Um, yeah, I actually visited the factory just just uh, four weeks ago, and it's really impressive to see these things come to life.
2: You mentioned you were able to go visit them in person. Did COVID impact? your abilities to make these investments in companies and, and actually be able to see them in person?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, because we were coming from an accelerator background, we were quite used to doing most parts of our due diligence remotely. So we think we were maybe a bit better off than, than others, but especially in our portfolio, just the, the com- on a company level, they they typically are in a in a phase where they need further capital so they again need to go out and and convince other investors and and that process was not easy but but also gaining new customers meeting new customers wasn't wasn't easy for them so i'm more comfortable or our organization was not so affected but i think our portfolio um had to go through through a very difficult time
1: George, uh, I actually went to school in Montana a number of years ago. So, so as soon as you mentioned um, a Montana-based company, my ears perked up even more. Where in Montana are they located?
3: That's a good question. Actually, I don't know that. Um, I because that's that's one of the things we. I never went to see them, so they came to us because we were running this accelerator program. They they showed us. Uh, they showed up um, first in Hawaii, where we kicked the program off. Then we took them to Norway with a quick stopover in in Germany because there was the the aqu- an aquaculture conference going on. And then we went to Indonesia and Singapore to finish this program off. And so that was a uh, three months program that that we were on. And I never made it to Montana, unfortunately, but. Through that program, we were able to bring all of our companies in close contact with the industry, with investors, with farmers. And of course, that program was not possible during COVID, but we were able to do a remote version of it.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, it's good for them to be able to, I mean, look, Montana is beautiful. I love it there. But like (laughs) they say in their little video on their company website, it is a landlocked state. And then to suddenly go to Hawaii and then Germany and Norway and Singapore. I mean, amazing for them. That's great.
3: The the message is also that the like aquaculture is like most of the U.S. seafood consumption, for example, or is is imported. Yeah, so that supply chain is happening somewhere else, and but the innovation that can go into it to make it more sustainable very often come from the U.S. and and a large portion of our portfolio is in the U.S. So the the general awareness in the us around aquaculture is not very high and the perception in the us is actually quite negative compared to most other regions but i i would really think that the us has an important role to play in in making the industry more sustainable
1: and speaking of that do you see sustainable aquaculture as a path towards achieving the united nations sustainable development goal number 14
3: i would i would I think it's never one solution like that there's a silver bullet so that that in probably in no for no other stg either with it, it it has its role to play so one of the things that we do invest in is regenerative yeah. aquaculture so for example by wealth oyster farms or seaweed farms put into the ocean act as a nursery for then juvenile fish that that use that as a protected zone to grow up, also there's no fishing going on when there's a farm, so there there is an active contribution to regrowing biodiversity and abundance at least on a medium small scale, yeah, then there's an a role to play in reliefing stress on on the wild stocks but if we are honest with ourselves there the data out there the science is is not conclusive on on that Um, there are a couple of factors Uh, one is because also in the feed for aquaculture there are marine ingredients in there the inclusion rates go down, but the volume of the industry goes up. So that's 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 a problem. Plus, it's it's just such a globalized um, world that it's not even possible, really, to to make proper studies on um, on these economic developments. And I would I would say that aquaculture is a, getting aquaculture right is a very important important piece of achieving the the uh, the SDG 14 but it's certainly not the only only solution
2: how optimistic are you that SDG 14 can be attained
3: unfortunately not I'm not very optimistic yeah um I'm I think it's it, as as probably a global citizen we we need to keep both things in our mind, like they see how severe the situation is, but also remain optimistic and and, and active um, in I think the especially this this goal yeah there's a big disadvantage and and that's um that's simply that it is underwater and that we don't really see it and we don't have a memory. Of it, of of like a long time ago, and of course there's an open access problem with the fishing and 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 pollution and and a the, the tragedy of the commons. So I'm I'm free diving and I'm sailing, you know, I'm out there, and I I think I can really see how the Mediterranean Sea, how certain coasts are really really empty, and I'm imagining how they look like maybe 500 or a thousand years ago so for me it's hard to see how a growing world with a growing consumption or a growing human population with a growing consumption is 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 able to really restore the oceans
1: George, you had mentioned a little bit uh, earlier when we, when we were speaking about your investment fund, where the funds, where you were able to raise uh, the money for that fund came from. And, you know, you mentioned what we, what we hear a lot with these types of funds is, you know, institutions and family offices, uh, high net worth individuals and the like. What about, uh, I guess, in your opinion, what do you believe retail investors and maybe perhaps more importantly, consumers can do to support sustainable aquaculture?
3: I mean, the, the retail investors, I think it's a bit hard because it's such a specialized field and it's a little bit difficult to understand and navigate the, the field. There's not really too much knowledge that you can transfer from a, from a consumer perspective. And there are not too many stocks for example that that you could you could buy mm. so i even though i really would love more capital to go into the space i think it's maybe a little bit um yeah difficult or unrealistic but i think on the consumer side there's a there's a big role to play uh, understanding that seafood like any other food can be non-sustainable or more sustainable it can it can be seasonal Yeah, i think that's something that most most people don't think about with seafood looking up where it's coming from thinking about what you as a consumer like to eat yeah, and what's what you don't want to see as a for example production method and then choosing choosing accordingly is 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 certainly an Important and there are labels to help. Yeah, um, Monterey Bay uh, Seafood Guide or the the ASC or the the BAP label. Looking for those on on packages when you when you buy seafood, I think is already a great start.
2: Well, great. We'll be sure to link to those resources when we finish up the podcast. Thank you again for joining us, George.
3: You you thank you for having us. Thank you for putting that topic on the, on the agenda.
2: Before we pull the plug on this episode of Impact Adventures, we would be remiss not to discuss one more aspect of how investors are taking a step to help protect the oceans, specifically by targeting the plastics that are polluting and damaging the marine ecosystem. With help from shareholder activist group, As You Sow, some companies have recently committed to making change. Target and Keurig, for example, agreed to reduce the annual virgin plastic in their brand packaging by 20% by 2025. And PepsiCo and Walmart also both agreed to cuts in virgin plastic use, though there weren't specific percentage terms that were pledged.
1: That's all for Impact Adventures today. We would like to thank our guests, Johan Berganos and George Ona. And of course, thank you to our editor, Angelica Hester, for carefully crafting this week's episode to make us all sound brilliant.
2: Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and leave a review. we love your feedback and we'd love to know what you liked and what you think we could do a little better. If you know of an impact story that we need to tell, please send it our way. Steve's on Instagram at thelamco, and I'm at Liz Skinner underscore, or you can tweet at Slim Slam or myself at Skinner Liz. Our email is podcast at investmentnews.com. And remember, life is an adventure, make an impact.